Warrior Woman, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 90, Finding Strength in the Gym and on the Rugby Field with Georgia Page. Georgia is a osteopath and a professional athlete. She practices at the Movement Improvement Clinic in Newcastle, Australia. She is a professional football player. She's a professional rugby league player for the Newcastle Knights. And she's the creator of Women's Rugby Academy. Georgia has quite a few missions in her life, and one of them is to empower women's rugby players. I really wanted to get her on to talk about what it's like playing in a very male-dominated sport. Uh, And we talk about her professional rugby career, what it's like playing uh, rugby in Australia, and Then we link this into like training with our physiology as females and the menstrual cycle. And it's pretty cool to hear, uh, you know, how she's working uh, on empowering other females who play a very male dominated sport to uh, train with their physiology, to understand their cycles, to learn how to nourish their body and train in a way that can really support uh, their career as rugby players. We also talk about Georgia's story, so how she became an osteopath and why, and how she started playing rugby. Then we talk about her work as an osteopath. I'm super interested in her approach and her philosophy, how she treats uh, her patients and her clients. And then we finish our conversation talking about something really cool. We talk about the role that hormones play in treating women in perimenopause and menopause. And Georgia's found some really cool stuff uh, in her practice over the last few years. And that is a perimenopausal and menopausal body can respond quite differently to a treatment And so if you're in, you know, perimenopause and menopause, this is something really cool to pay attention to around, you know, the the response of your body to a a treatment or an adjustment when you're in these phases. And we talk about a lot more. Georgia's a really cool chick. Uh, It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with her and I hope you enjoy episode 90. Welcome to the Warrior School podcast the podcast for women who train. I believe lifting weights, knowing our cycles and training with them is the future of women's training. I also believe this training, nutrition and health stuff shouldn't feel so goddamn hard and we should all feel strong and confident. So this is your go-to show for practical information to build a stronger and healthier body. You'll find content on training, nutrition, hormones, and tons of experts who want to help you get stronger and healthier. I am your teacher, Amy Bow, coach, dietitian, and the creator of Warrior School. Okay, Warrior Woman, let's do this. Beautiful. Well, when she comes on, she tells us to start. We're recording. 
So we're going to start. Georgia. Yeah, it, came, it came up on my screen. I was like, oh, wait, we're recording now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When Hello. she comes up, when you hear her, when she pops on your screen, that is like, a, you know, how in uh, the movies or the TV shows, they like have the boards or the signs, like three, two, one, you see it and then you go. Yeah. <laughs> we're on we're on we're on welcome to the podcast oh i'm excited to be here doing great things in the woman's space (laughs) thank you uh likewise i'm really excited to talk to you today uh about a lot of things your work uh your training the work that you do with women in sport uh and i would love to start i like to start with story so people can know you a little better and then we can connect your dots and kind of understand you know why you do what you do so I'd love for you to start with what do you do what do you do for work what do you do for training and then let's go back to some dots and kind of connect them around how you got to what you're doing today so I'm an osteopath I'm also a professional rugby league player myself and I'm also about to start my PhD. Oh, cool. I didn't know that one. Yeah. <laughs> what is, is your, yeah, what is it going to be on? Um, so it's going to be on the changing tackle technique in women's rugby league players to decrease the likeliness of head injuries and concussions. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we're, when we talk about rugby and you playing and the work that you do there, and I really want to get into like the sport and like the differences and we can dive into that. I really would like to talk about that topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's interesting because there's not much actual research on the differences between women and men in um, particularly rugby league. There's a little bit in rugby union, but not much in rugby league. So it's an interesting time and I feel like I've jumped on it pretty early to be one of the first kind of to start researching, which is cool. It's so cool. It's so cool. Okay, where should we start? Uh, so osteopath, professional rugby uh, league player and going to do your PhD. Let's talk about how you got there. Uh, well, I think it's probably best to go back to when I was in high school. I loved all different sports. Like I remember the PE teachers would be like, oh, George, you want to come play this school sport this day? Like um, if it was touch, basketball, athletics, literally any sport. Like I, I would much prefer go do a day of sport than play. I mean, than sitting in the classroom. And if I was playing sport, I would usually just – keep going away each week so I didn't have to go to school. <laughs> not real, not like when I was about 13, 14, 15, thinking that, you know, sport was going to be my life and I wasn't ever actually having to do schoolwork from then. <laughs> um, and then I got injured playing tennis when I was maybe like 15, 16, and I was in so much pain in my back that I couldn't even like swing a racket I couldn't even get in and out of a car and I was so miserable. I literally would drive past tennis courts and cry. (laughs) And we went and saw like an orthopedic surgeon. We saw like physio, chiro. um, And then the last person we saw was an osteopath. 
And literally within like two weeks, this osteopath like took all my pain away. And I was, I just said to my mom, I was like, I want to be able to do that. I don't know what they do, but I want to be able to do that. So when I was in year 10, I went and did work experience with that osteo. And then, yeah, from then on, that was it. I was going to be an osteopath. So since I was like 15, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. (laughs) And here we are, 10 years, 11 years later. So cool. So you (laughs) finished school and then did you go straight to university for osteopath? Yep. So when I was, I finished school when I was 17. So I was like, you know, a little bit younger. I moved away from home because there's only three universities in Australia that do osteo. And I started osteo, studied that for a year and a half. And then that's when I was like, started playing rugby sevens and at that time it was just before the um, olympics where sevens was starting to like take off and i got offered a scholarship to go play in america so study and play rugby in america at the same time so then i moved to america started studying um, athletic training for i got i had a scholarship for five years but i stayed for one just because i loved I realised I loved osteo so much and I didn't want to finish out um, school there. And I don't know, it was a bit of a strange time when I was quite young. I was only like 19, 20. But it was the best thing I ever did. And then I came back and then I finished my osteo undergrad and then I finished my master's and I've been working for two years. Very cool. Okay. (laughs) Let's, yeah. So you, when did you start playing rugby? So my first year of uni, uh, I used to play basketball before I played rugby. So I played basketball. I went tennis, then I went basketball, then it was rugby sevens. <laughs> and my first year of uni, I was playing basketball and there wasn't really much of a comp where my university was. So I started playing like just muck around touch and one of the girls was like, oh, you should come play rugby sevens. And I was like, um, tackle seven <laughs> she's like yeah <laughs> <laughs> should be fun I honestly played one game and it was like the best thing I'd ever experienced so from then I just loved footy <laughs> yeah what did you when you played that one game what did you love about it like what was I think that I just loved the fact that you're out there with your mates and it's such a physically hard game and back then I was also nearly nine kilos lighter so I was a lot faster <laughs> I was a lot faster and it's just like you gotta run around everywhere and I don't know I just love that feeling of you know running down the sideline and scoring a try there's no quite adrenaline rush like that and making tackles even though I had no idea how to tackle <laughs> <laughs> so yeah 2000 and that was 2013 Okay, so that's when you started to get into it and then you were offered your scholarship and you moved to the yes. States. Uh, did a year there playing still. Mm-hmm. Okay, and studying athletic therapy. Yeah. Yeah, and then you came back home, went back into uh, osteopathy and then continued to play. Yep, and continued to play. But when I got back, I had like numerous injuries straight after coming back from America, it was like one after the other for like two seasons in a row and then had like consistent kind of season 
again. So I got back in 2000, mid-2015 and then had injuries until like mid-2016 and then was back training and playing from like 2017. So. Yeah. Can you talk me through like playing the sport but being injured but also studying osteopathy? Like how like how was that experience? Um, it's very funny. <laughs> it's it's an interesting thing being uh, an athlete that like was trying to train quite full time almost, studying and working <laughs> and um, and trying to manage all of that. And I think when I got back and I came to Australia, it was a little bit different because in America it's like you just play and you study. Like that's all you do. Like and playing is almost like your your sport is almost more important than your study almost. <laughs> yeah. And so the university treat you like professional athletes. So it's very different. Then when I came back, I think I was a little bit overwhelmed by having to manage everything again. But my time management had gotten better than what it was to previously. <laughs> I got injured. I broke my leg when I came back. And it was like the first kind of big injury that I had really had. And I was miserable. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do anything, couldn't drive anywhere. I was just, I was like such a sobby person. And then I started, I was like, I'm not just footy. Like that's not just me. I have so many other aspects of myself. And that's when I started like focusing on my study again. And so that, at that point, it was like a uh, turning point in my like university career, I would say, where I was like, all right, well, I don't want to just get a pass. I want to get like high distinctions. I want to get distinctions. And that's when I started focusing on that. And I went from a, like a pass to a distinction athlete <laughs> student. So it was good to change like that. But I definitely realized how injuries can play a toll on your mind and the psychological burden that it causes to players. But it's also like, you know, six months down the track, you're going to be fine. <laughs> but it's funny that when you live in that moment, you're not realising how how bad it is now, but it's going to be fine in six months, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to see the impermanence of it. Uh, what I found, though, over the last 10 years is the more stuff comes up in the body, whether that's a serious injury or a sensation or some pain or the, uh, the better you get at understanding the impermanence of it. So I remember when I originally did my back, I just felt so weak and broken and helpless. And like coming back from that was one of the hardest but most rewarding experiences uh, I've ever had. And then I remember I injured something else and I didn't deal with that very well because it brought up the story around, no, 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 no. I'm not weak and broken. Like I'm strong. And I just never dealt with injuries very well. It took me maybe four or five, you know, not serious, but definitely that stopped my training practice or the volume of my lifting to be like, you know what, these are just sensations and information. It's telling you something about your practice uh, and you need to focus on that. And it's impermanent. It's not going to last forever. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you know what, as uh, for you as a coach and for me as a practitioner, 
I think experiencing pain and that is the most important thing because you can be very empathetic to someone because you know what they're going through. And pain is not nice and it is very scary. And it's like if you've got someone there that is supportive and can say to you, like for me as a practitioner, I say, you know what, this is going to pass. We're going to be okay. Just trust me. And people freak out. I'm like, it's all right. It's going to be all right. And, you know, two weeks later they're like, oh, I should have just listened to you straight away. But it's just so scary that first initial part of being in pain, your body's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't do anything, can't do anything, you know. Yeah, it's so scary. I I say this thing so when I'm coaching my women and if they feel like pain or discomfort or something happens, you know, I remind them like, okay, like the let's like the body is safe, like you're okay and they hate it. They like it almost makes them angrier or want to cry when I'm like, you know what? Your body's safe. You're fine. It's okay. Like we're going to be okay. We just have to like breathe through it, do this thing and they they just get like so angry about it because they can't you know, they can't see the impermanence of it. And it's scary. It's scary to be in pain and not be able to move or do something. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and if you've never experienced that and you can and you can't say to someone, you know, I've had like my list of injuries goes on and on, but it's like I've had broken bones, I've had concussions, I've had like serious like tendon strain. So no ligaments left. Like I know what pain feels like. You know what I mean? Like But there's also a difference between pain, discomfort, and then your, what you think is going to be too hard for you to do. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about that. This is one of my favorite topics. Oh, I love this topic (laughs) because often, and as a practitioner, I'm so sure you hear this all the time. This hurts. This is painful. And I always love to dig deep into the language that we use, uh, And like, what is pain? What does it feel like? Is it painful or is it uncomfortable? Uh, And so could you talk me through, like as a practitioner, how you, I guess, educate or support your clients through that experience of being able to like understand the difference between like pain or discomfort or, you know, their body really not being safe uh, or their body being safe. But yeah, all of those feelings and sensations. It's funny because I think it's like the certain type, there's certain types of people and understanding what kind of person you're treating. So there's like the people that will just push through anything that even if there's pain, they're like, oh, well, she'll be right. Like, we'll just keep going. And then they come in and they're like, yeah, it was really sore, but I kept going. <laughs> what? So you would think that you would realize that what you're doing is actually not good and you'd stop. So there's that kind of person. Then there's the person that's like has the tiniest little bit of inkling of, oh, that hurt too much. I can't do it. And it's like, okay, well, how much did it really hurt? And what did it really feel like? They're like, oh, it's just uncomfortable. Or maybe like a two hours. And I was like, no, you'd be right, mate. Like, <laughs> so it's like working out what kind of person you're dealing with first, I think is the most important part. And saying to someone, like, understanding what certain pains are, essentially. So I say if it feels sharp and it's sharp and it's, like, stabbing, I'm like, we don't want that at all. Like, that's not – that's more of an acute, like, we need to avoid that. If it's uncomfortable and you are just feeling, like, a below 4 out of 10 pain, I'm like, we can probably keep pushing through that as long as it doesn't keep increasing. So as long as we don't get to, like, a 5 if you stand at four and it's uncomfortable, I'm happy with that. And then people are like, okay. And I say, I say, you know, 
it's not me that has to judge what a four is. It's you that judges what a four is. And so people have to put onus on themselves and, you know, they're like, okay, well, this maybe feels like a three, four, I'm okay. And at least then the person is kind of taking control of it and it's not me being the bad person. You know what I mean? I'm not the one that's saying, well, I don't think that's a four out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're lying to me. I know that's a four out of 10. Although if you've been doing it for a long time and you kind of know what's going on and you know kind of the process, you're like, you know, I can, I know there's not really a four out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like your body's pretty safe. Like you're okay. Um, Exactly. And I I always try and explain to someone, it's like, we need to load this tissue, right? But if we load it too much, we'll piss the tissue off. So the tissue will be angry and it will have a little bit of a flare and that will last for a few days, but it's going to come back down. So I say, like, if, you've, if you're dealing with, like, a tendon rehab, which I talk about this a lot because it happens, you can flare a tendon like that. Um, and I think just not, if you know that that is a possibility of happening, then it's like, oh, well, we've just done too much work and it's a bit sore. It'll come back down. But, and I so I explain that to people. And then I say, if we don't load it, though, you're going to have this problem for a very long time and it's just going to keep coming back. So we need to load the tissue. And then people start to like, all right, well, they understand that, so they have to load it, and then they get better. And they're like, oh, we should have done this ages ago. Yeah. And again, of course, you know, when we know better, we can do better. Or when we move through the experience, we can see that, hey, actually, the process or the method worked and I should have done this. Uh, But, you know, I am guilty myself. It took me a really long time to get there, to get to the place where it's like, okay, it's uncomfortable, you know, I'm going to, I have to do these things to make it better, uh, which means that I might not be able to do the training practice that I want, uh, which is the hard thing. Uh, The hardest thing. The hardest thing. Yeah, we only want to do the sexy stuff, you know, and recovering from an injury or dealing with pain or discomfort or whatever's going on is not sexy. Well, and, you know, th- talking about this makes me think of, like, a patient I've kind of had recently and it's like, you know, when can I do handstands? And I'm like, well, when you can hold a hollow body hold at full leverage for four times 45 seconds. And I was like, let's have a look at your hollow, hollow body holds. And it's like, this, you know, maybe one leg out and even arms still in the tuck position. I was like, you can't be skipping levels to be doing handstands until you pass the prerequisites, you know? <laughs> yes. I love, let's talk about this. Cause I talk about this all the time with the women that I work with. It's like, we have to build the body from the ground up. So there are yes. standards and qualities that you need to meet in movements before you can do the sexy stuff. And exactly. you can't do the cool pulling things or the heavy squats or the handstands until you one, have the movement pattern there. So you actually have the range and the mobility. And then two, you actually have the tension, the control, the coordination to do the movement. Uh, exactly. Yes. Like, I agree 100%. It's like, I think people want to skip that because they just want to look good and they're excited for that. But it's like, do you want to come out in like weird injuries or, you know, <laughs> I've been, a, I've done it to myself so many times when I was younger. It's like, oh, I'm going to go deadlift like 120 kilos with not much warm up. 
woke up literally for two weeks. I've been rolling out of bed like my back is cooked. <laughs> just trying to be strong and look good. That's just stroking my ego. <laughs> It totally, you know? it totally is. And I get it. It's the culture, the culture, obviously, <laughs> that was created around, yeah, fitness and training. Uh, talk to me about how, yeah, like you just gave an example of say someone has a goal to do a certain skill or something in their training. Maybe they come to see you because they have a bit of shoulder pain or wrist pain or elbow pain. So there's that part of like actually working through figuring out what's going on with the body and approaching it that way. And then there's also the movement piece of like getting them back into the practice or being able to work towards their goal. Could you like, could you break it down a little bit? Yeah. Uh, So I like to always train isometrically to start with. I love ISO holds and I love to train top end and bottom end of range of motion. So like I love to get someone like shortened ISO holds, let's say like a flexed arm hang, you've got to hold at the top at like four times 30 seconds. And then let's say full extension um, shrugs, you need to be slow and controlled with those. And then we train the movement in the middle. But until you're strong at the bottom end of range and top end of range, the in-between is going to be super hard. So you may as well do the others first. <laughs> so that's how I like, let's say for a chin-up, or let's say we want to get Nordic. Nordics are too hard to bang out for a woman. Like I'm, there's not many women I can I know that can actually do full Nordics because they they don't do the prerequisite strength, which actually takes probably about two years to build to get to that. Say that again. Say that again. I love that number. <laughs> it takes two. Well, this is how long it took me. It took me two years. To build almost full Nordic strength and I still lack the last probably like 15 degrees at the end um, and it takes you know going through let's say a really easy movement of hamstring sliders into RDLs into more just ISO holds at different ranges of the Nordic and then to banded Nordics and then to Nordics it's like there's so many stages that you need to go through that take a long time to build the capacity and strength that then to get to Nordics. <laughs> yeah. And I think that we put so much pressure on ourselves to know, you know, to look good and see other, you see other people doing them. It's like, oh, well, they've got it. And it's like, well, how long have they been training to get to that point? And it's like, don't be so hard on yourself. You need to go through these phases to get to that. Yes. I can tell you they've been training for years. Very, very, very long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, but people don't know that. People just see something and they're like, oh, well, I can do that. Well, I know that's how I usually feel. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't be able to do that. But then I'm like, oh, I need, what do I need to do to get to that? <laughs> Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today, like about like for your work, obviously for being an osteopath and a practitioner and helping people through their experience, uh, but also like your training and what you do and your experience. uh, And, you know, I talk about it a lot. Is it like, it takes years, takes years to develop a strong, resilient, capable body. And Uh, maybe even longer, depending on so many variables. Yeah. Like, uh, 
variables. Yeah, like stress, your life, uh, you know, how often you train. Uh, do you have a coach? Do you actually have a good program? You know, all of these things, often people talk about timelines, like how long is it going to take me to get this? How long is it going to take me to get that? And the timeline depends on the variables of yeah. like... <clears throat> It's so hard to make timelines when, you know, everyone is individualized. You can't be like one blanket rule for everything. Yeah. But the way you just spoke about the Nordic is how I often explain timelines. Okay. You (laughs) want to be able to do a pull-up. I'm not going to say in two years, you're going to get a pull-up because I don't know the timeline for you. It's going to depend on so many different things like your consistency in training, your nutrition, your sleep, your recovery, uh, all of these uh, variables. But what I can tell you is the standards and the process and the method that you need to be able to achieve to get there. So like you just said, you need to be able to hang on a bar for one. Yeah. Can you hang on a bar for like 60 seconds for like five sets? Can you hold yourself at the top for a certain amount of time and sets? Can you hold, can you do scapular shrugs in the bottom? Like there's, I love talking about progress in standards because then they can see like, Hey, actually, I can't even hang on a bar for 10 seconds. So a pull-up is going to be a really long time away if we can't hang on a bar. And so then we get to develop these smaller timelines around standards in movement. And then, you know, building that builds quality of movement. Like we want the quality. I don't want to see like shitty half chin-ups. Who wants to see shitty like bent arms at the bottom you know I want chest the bar and I want full lockout like (laughs) yes pretty we want pretty we want graceful we want quality yes exactly and I so much I put onus on myself to have extreme quality in my movements except for when I'm I, I like will allow myself to not look as good when I'm learning new movements I'm like all right they don't have to be perfect when I'm learning a new skill or a new movement because I've never done it before and it's like I can't be like you need that shit perfect right now but I, I I'll let myself let's say for me I've never really done like heaps of handstands maybe in COVID last year I started in 2020 I started doing handstands because you know everyone's in lockdown I actually started with headstands first so <laughs> I went from headstands to handstands but I had to build my skill and capacity up and not look graceful doing that to end up being graceful. (laughs) But I still went through the processes to get there, you know? Yeah. And I think one reason why it's really important is if we do this, we reduce our risk of injury. Uh, If we're learning to build it from the ground up and we take our time, we choose the slow way, the long way, I think it's really the fast way because if you build a good foundation and you learn how to move the body properly, you reduce your risk of injury, you just increase consistency in training and you'll never lose that movement. Like I, I could do not do a pull up or any for like probably years and I could probably jump back up there and just do pull ups because I spent five, six, seven years developing the pulling capacity. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I agree so much. We just need to get this message to people to not feel the pressure of society and others to get to that point. It's like, just chill. You're going to get there. We're going to go slowly and build. But even even as an athlete and, you know, looking at when we're in team, like uh, team strength and conditioning sessions, 
Um, you know, there might be some girls that are deadlifting like 50 kilos heavier than me. And it's like, oh, well, I need to be lifting heavier. And it's like, well, no, my position on the field is different. I'm a lighter athlete. I'm, you know, all these factors that you just don't think about straight away. But it's like you're always comparing yourself to others and what they're doing. And it's like, well, no, we need to focus on me. <laughs> yeah, comparison. And just thinking, all right, I'm thinking about myself and being the best version of me and what I can do. I don't need to compare to what other people are doing. Yeah. And it's contextual. Like I often say to my women, it's okay to like look at another woman and see what she can do with her body and be inspired by that and want to be strong and, and want to lift heavier and, and maybe do the skill that she's doing, but it's not okay to compare. Like I'm not enough. And I wish I was there. And also what's the context, especially if you're in a team sport, like you said, what's your position? Like, what do you need to do? to support your performance and your position and it's the same within your your training practice it's contextual so what do you need to do um and of course yeah I think we can look to other women and be inspired by what they can do with their bodies and be like oh I'd love to do that skill I think that's really cool I'd love to like deadlift you know 120 kilos but also bringing it back to like what do I need right now what does my body need Exactly. And, you know, and realizing that you don't need to overtrain. When I was younger, particularly, and I see a lot of young athletes, I'm a, more of a senior player now. I'm getting old. Jeez. <laughs> but now I look at younger athletes and just not all of them, but some that overtrain and they over, they push themselves so much and they just cook their nervous system because they're going for three to 5K runs seven days a week plus doing speed, plus doing field sessions, plus not sleeping well, not eating enough. And then I'm like, then they're like, oh, I haven't had a period for six months. And I'm like, what have you been doing to yourself? Your nervous system is just fried. And that is what I like would do stuff like that when I was 18, 19. No wonder I came out in all these weird overuse injuries. But no one, no one was there to guide me through, especially as a female athlete at that age. So it's like, Women are different to men, equal but not the same. I heard um, Paul Check say that and I thought that is so true. And it's like we need to be treated slightly differently because we are cyclic humans. We're not just bloody testosterone 24-7. <laughs> and it's like we need to be gentle with ourselves in certain times of the month. We need to deload regularly and not feel the pressure to perform at pointless times because it's not preparing us properly. <laughs> yeah, this is what I want to talk about because you're in a very male-dominated sport. I did Olympic weightlifting, super male-dominated sport. My whole life I've had male coaches. Now they've, they're phenomenal. They taught me so much about how to train, how to train properly. Uh, they pushed me as an athlete. They were an amazing coaches, but still they were male and they didn't understand female physiology. And so you're in this sport that's so male dominated. Talk to me about the experience being in a, like a male dominated sport. Do they talk about it? Do you have to start talking about it do you have a coach is the coach male I have so many questions so <laughs> you know what last year or this year sorry this year is the first time 
any of my sports have tracked cycle menstruation for all athletes this year. And it's like, how crazy is that? I've been tracking my cycle for three years now, but it's for the first time ever they're talking about it a little bit. <laughs> Not talking about it, but starting to track it, realising that, you know, there are some certain um, phases of our cycle where there's an increased injury risk, essentially. And it's like, well, it's interesting that they're, they're tracking it, but it's like I don't actually know what they're doing with it, <laughs> you know. But until then, no one has even talked about it. It's like, you know, you got your period and that's it. Like, oh, why is Georgia a bit pissy? Oh, she must have a period or something. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, there's literally, like, that's the little little things, but no one's ever really talked about it until maybe now is it starting, starting, which is it's exciting the times are changing, but it's still girls don't know anything. They know nothing. <laughs> yeah, so when you say, um, just for context for the women that are listening, like a professional rugby league, so most people over here have no idea what rugby league is. <laughs> so It's sort of like similar to rugby union, but a little bit different. So, yeah that's um look there's there's tackling involved there's running involved there's a ball involved um repeated yes. sprint efforts repeated sprint efforts collisions up to like from 10 to 35 collisions a game yeah um 30 minute halves 60 minute games and there's 13 players on a full field a full rugby size field and you run at each other from 20, 20 metres away, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's one, very physically taxing, obviously. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then we have this physiology piece. So I'd love to know, uh, are you are you playing for, is it Newcastle Knights women? Yeah. Rugby? Yeah. Okay. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, Isn't the it? first team ever. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. Knights team, which is exciting. That's huge. I know it's massive. Uh, the, we used to have, there was four in the professional league. Now there's six teams. Is there really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so cool! Six women's teams in the professional rugby league. Yes, that's good. Very, very cool. Okay, so I and want to know about your getting paid, which is wild too. <laughs> okay, I wasn't going to ask about the pay, but you are getting paid. Yeah. So for three months, we get a contract of um, between, so minimum contract, I think, was 10 grand this year. 10 to, so it's between 10 and 16 grand. And if you're a an Australian player or a top 30 player, you get paid more. That's that's cool. Yeah, for three months. It ends up being like a, around $1,000 a week, which is cool. That is really cool. And it's a start, just like we're starting to talk about menstrual cycles. We're, starting we're just to- starting to get paid. <laughs> we're, just start- we're just starting to get paid. <laughs> I know, which is wild. Oh. You know, female, this is an interesting conundrum for female athletes, not just from rugby league, but a lot of sports besides maybe tennis and surfing <laughs> and golf. Tennis, surfing and golf, they definitely have it the best. But um, it's like women are supposed to be as professional as, pro- as possible and perform on the field, court, whatever, to standard of men, but 
you know, we work full time, we have children and we still fulfill roles that guys do not do. So it's like, how can our finished product that is supposed to be like televised be as good as the men's when we don't train full time? So it's like, you know, yeah, it's changing. We're still probably another five years away, I think five, six years away from when that will be possible. Yeah. Talk to me about like the practice right now. Like what, how often do you train? Do you have a coach? How much support do you get? Are you all on a program? Uh, Obviously you compete and you play the game once a week, similar to the men's. Yes. Yeah. So when we're in season, we'll probably, we train, depending if we're talking about like the NRLW season, we train four times a week and play once a week. Um, But in the off season, or like now, let's say before we start footy, so often girls don't get given strength programs in their off season, and they they start their strength in like just in pre season when we go back, and it's like we're trying to strength train and teach girls movements whilst they're already getting like pushed in conditioning, and they're flogging the bodies with pre season, so it's like why can't we build skill capacity in the gym while they're not here and so often girls do not get that and it's like when you're in a team sport you just get get given a blanket snc program it's not specific to individuals and it's like how can girls get stronger and have specificity when it's a blanket program you know and then they're not taking into consideration all the fluctuating fluctuating hormonal cycles and it's just like, when is that going to change? I don't know. I don't know. We're very far away from that. <laughs> <laughs> I try to get like my women's rugby academy that I started. Which, um, I haven't mentioned that yet, but I started that because I wanted to close the skill gap development between women and men. And that's what I do for myself. I'm closing the skill gap development between myself and what the men get. I train four times a week. I do speed twice a week and I do conditioning twice a week. And that's what most athletes should be doing, but also taking into consideration, obviously, deload weeks, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I don't know when that's going to change in sport. <laughs> yeah, so what? What's? Um, can you talk a bit about the academy? Like what do you – is it like a physical space or just a – like a platform that the girls can like connect in or? So it's uh, an app. It's going to be an app on your phone, but I haven't got enough users and it hasn't got enough um, content in it yet to be fully on an app, but you can just go on a website and it's like an app layout essentially. It's kind of like, uh, if you will, learning modules and videos so that you can understand your female physiology you can see the demands of rugby league. It's all, it's, I would say it's for rugby codes. So league seven and union um, 15s. And it's like going through all that, understanding how to fuel your body, essentially like a holistic approach to being a female athlete in a contact sport is really oh, cool. everything that it lays out in that. <laughs> and then I give out strength programs depending on um, what level of uh, like if you're an intermediate beginner advanced and yeah 
that's pretty much so it. this is like your you know you practice as a practitioner as a as an osteopath like full time mm -hmm. and then you have this baby i guess that you're trying to birth into the to the world to support women yes. in sport that play a contact sport exactly yeah exactly really cool. yeah well i wish it was i wish i could make it bigger and show women like what they need to know on there and like to be like you need this but I don't want to be like selling products you know what I mean <laughs> yeah I think I think it'd be really cool uh to do a podcast just on that to to talk through like the the that work the the academy and and you know, how you, the, I guess the approach, the strategy, you know, I love talking mm. about strategies and plans and often as women in sport and in team sport, you know, we're not given those strategies and those plans. We are sent to a gym. Like you said, we follow the same strength and conditioning program uh, and then we go out and play, but there's no strategy to that. We don't understand all the other pieces that we need to look for uh, in order to be able to perform at our best. No, exactly. And exactly it's like, where are we in our cycle? Are we ovulating? So we're ovulating. Let's go hard in strength, but you know, you need to have a really appropriate neuromuscular warm up so that you don't blow your ACL. <laughs> Like why no one teaches you that? Why yeah. didn't why do we not learn that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not even taught about our cycles in school, so <laughs> you know. Do you have a coach? Uh, so my coach, I have a strength coach, which I've taught him all about menstrual cycle, and yes. so we program together, coinciding with my menstrual cycle. <laughs> um. He's that at rugby development coach. So he programs on my strength, but I've taught him about the menstrual cycle stuff and like I said, put it all together. And then I recently got a new jiu-jitsu coach, which is epic, so a grapple coach. And um, I also actually have a nutrition coach as well. <laughs> yeah. It's which important. Is, um, we need coaches. We need people who not... You know, I've, I've been thinking a little bit about this because often people will think about having a coach to hold yourself accountable. But when you're an athlete or when you have a really strong training practice, it's not about accountability because I'll, I'll train. Yeah. yeah, I don't need a coach to hold me accountable. I hold myself accountable. The coach helps me master, masters the skill or the practice. The coach gives me essential feedback that I need to get better. Uh, the coach yeah. does all of, all of these things. The coach doesn't hold me accountable. Uh, we need to no. hold ourselves accountable. We need to take that responsibility. But, you know, like you said, you need, you need a strategy and you need people on your team to help you create that strategy, but you have to show up and do the work at, in the end of the day. Exactly. It's the same as like treating patients. I'm only half of the half of the equation. They need to be doing what I tell them. <laughs> Otherwise, they're not going to get better. 
Yeah. And often they don't want to do that, you know. They don't no. want to do they don't want to do the boring exercises that you tell them to do at home. It's like, oh no, I don't really want to do that. But those exercises, I was actually having a conversation yesterday with someone. She's like, oh, I don't like doing it. It's like boring. And I said, when I had my back injury, I had to do hollow body holds every day. I think I did them every day for 12 months until <laughs> I got an amazing, beautiful, full body hollow hold weighted and I had the strongest midline I went from like being so weak and broken and not being able to hold the progression one of a hollow body to like developing out this really strong hollow body but it took a long time and did I like it no was it boring yes but was it necessary absolutely I think I always try to think back and sometimes I forget this and I, I need to say to people why we're doing what we're doing and not just give it to them because once you understand the why, it's a lot easier to be a bit more, um, what's the word, like you keep them keen and doing their exercises because they understand why they're actually doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think the why is really important and I think we have to take action. Like we wait for motivation a lot of the time. I, I need to get motivation to do my exercises. Well, no, actually. I don't believe in motivation. Yeah. So I don't believe in motivation. I love that. You need to do the exercises to yeah. actually feel the difference, which then therefore, yes, if you believe in motivation, that will give you motivation, I guess, to keep going. <laughs> People don't have discipline. This is the thing. They need discipline to do their shit. <laughs> I think having a coach coaches kind of cultivate a little bit more discipline but it's like if you don't do shit then you're not going to get stronger you're not going to get leaner and that's your own fault it's not the coach's fault they're trying to help you the best that they can and they've given you some strategies and tools in place and you know what I don't care about paying for anything because for me it's paying for things means that I'm going to get quality training and that's good for me. It means I'm going to be the best I can. But it's like, how do we get people into that mindset? I don't know. I don't know. I've been trying for 13 years. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I say this all the time. Like I spend over $700 a month on coaching. I have a business coach. I have a coach that I work with for my training. I've had a coach for my training for 10 years. So I haven't even added it up, but you know, it's like, tens of thousands of dollars that I've spent on my training practice and my business, but look what I can do. <laughs> I just yeah. like, look what I can do in my training practice. Look at the business that I can build because I've had coaches to like, to push me, to like push me to mastery um, and yes, discipline. And this is another one that I love to talk about. It's you need to be disciplined. You need to find, you, you can have a plan. You can even have a program, but if you don't have the discipline to show up and do it, it's, that's your responsibility. That's, you need to take ownership for that. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, I think it comes down to values and it's like, what do you value? You know, do you value being um, healthy? Do you value what you're going to look like in, 40 years like I've worked in aged care homes and I don't want to look like that even though I play contact sports I really look after my body because I don't want to be that old person that can't actually like sweep the floors anymore and have to be looked after because I didn't look after my body when I was younger by doing 
the stretching, by sleeping well. That's I usually like the age care thing is what freaks me out the most. And that's one of the things that drives me to be an efficient mover and very functional is to be killing it when I'm 80. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even kidding. That for me is like one of the biggest drivers. I don't think people think about that part of our life. But one, I don't think age is going to hold me back. I'm like, I will still be bloody weightlifting. (laughs) And blowing chin-ups and shit when I'm like 60, 70. Yeah, I say that all the time. I'm going to still be doing pull-ups when I'm like 80. (laughs) (laughs) But I think people don't see it like that, though. People don't see the values and your beliefs behind things. They're just like, I don't know, they want instant gratification for whatever they want to do, but they don't, yeah, they need to have better values, I think. Yeah, or they need a stronger why I often talk about. Like, why are you doing it? You know, if you're doing it just to get the result or the outcome or you're doing it to just change your body composition, it's not a strong enough why, you know, and you, you like you won't ever really get there. Whereas if you train to uh, be strong because it changes the posture and like who you are and how you show up in the world. Uh, If you want to be functional and pain-free for your kids to, when you get older, you know, I, I like, still I walk up the stairs with all my groceries like I live on the third floor but like like heavy like I'm the person that doesn't like to go back to the car to get the extra bags I like to load myself up but like I walk the stairs and people in my building are like oh taking the stairs are you instead of the elevator and I'm like I'll be taking the stairs. I want to take the stairs when I'm 80. I still want to be able to carry my groceries that are like probably 50 kilos on my body when I'm 80 years old. I don't want to be the person that has to take the elevator. No, I agree 100%. Even at airports and everyone's on the, on the, and I don't want to wait. I'm like, I'm going the stairs. Always. <laughs> yeah, but it's those, Georgia, it's those moments that we can choose to do the thing that moves our body in order for us to be able to move well for the rest of our lives. It's taking the stairs instead of the elevator. It's going for the walk. We have to make this choice every day. Like, and I'm sure you can speak to this. Every day I have to wake up and I have to choose to do my practice. It's a choice that I make to train, to look after my body, to eat the food that I do. For some reason, people think that, I don't know, that it just like, I guess, I guess it's easy if you know your why and it becomes such a part of like who you are, but it's also a choice that you have to make every day. It's also, I think, you know, realizing that doing these things means that you feel good in yourself and that, you know, having like, I'm, I'm not against like having like treats every now and then and enjoying that. But people that go for eating like shitty foods every day don't actually, I don't think they realize how shit they actually feel. And it's not until you take that stimulus away and you start to fit, like do the right things. You're like, oh, wow, I actually feel really good. And until you start to do those things, it's like you're actually uh, like feeling like shit. And then you don't feel how you're supposed to feel that people just stay in that routine. And it's just like, oh, it's like, poking my eyes with needles when I when I'm yeah. trying to teach people this and they just keep doing the wrong things and I think it just must be hardwired in our brains to do what's easy 
Yeah, for sure. It's easy to take the it's easy to take the easy way. Yeah, it's, I often talk about this in our training. The body will always want to cheat. Yeah, it will always want to take the most efficient way out of whatever we're doing because it just wants it to be easy. It's the same with our minds, especially if we're low on energy. So if we're like our tank is low because we're not giving it the fuel, we want to make it easier because we don't have the energy. We don't have the capacity to like keep going. Uh, and so... <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's the same with training. I think the, you know, we'll always want to cheat. We'll always want to go faster, you know, not do it, uh, correctly because we just want to get through it. Or the body just wants to like, yeah, cheat a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's like, you know, the values and beliefs around food is always a hard one too. It's like, you know, you need to eat more protein. You need to eat more fat. You're like fat. I can't eat fat. I'm having low fat this and low fat that. I'm like, <laughs> I whack myself in the head and I'm like, you know, the low fat actually has more sugar in it than the, the fat stuff does. And then they're like, minds are blown. And it's just like, is this because of what society has taught us? You know, wh- why are we having to re-educate little things like that? Like, does my yeah. it's the culture it's it's definitely it's the culture it's the fitness culture it's the diet culture um it's a lot of unlayering and uncovering of a lot of well of like well-view and belief systems that have been there from from the culture that often just create these fictional beliefs that aren't even real um it's which is why it's, it's so yeah which is why the tracking is essential uh like just paying attention just checking in with the body writing in your training journal understanding your cycle write down what you ate today how was your sleep how was your energy like all of these things it's just data and it's telling you if what you're doing is working for you or not yeah exactly and then if it's not working don't get angry at yourself and feel bad it's like all right well we just need to change something and once we change something and then it starts to work oh well that works for me as an individual and like you know we can't just spit out one meal plan diet it's going to work for everyone it's you know, everyone has different genetics, they're different life stresses, like you said, and we just have to find what works for us. Yeah. We have to create our own strategy. Similar with your work as a practitioner, you know, we can have like a, a problem or an injury, but the whole thing is creating a strategy to help you move through that. And that, you know, we can come up with a plan, but you know, we, and the body then will tell us something. So then we need to change that plan. And I think as humans, we need to be okay that it's going to change. And we need to be able to be like, to allow and receive that. We're not very good at it. If we have a plan and we have a strategy, we have to follow the plan and follow the strategy and it has to be perfect. And okay, if we do that, then we're not going to listen to the body and we're just going to keep going. (laughs) And then this is where it's, yeah. And I think I'm sure you come up against that as a practitioner as well yeah definitely as a practitioner you know what I I don't get it right every time like I've flared many people up in my time practicing like I thought what works for one person will work for another and I apply that and like they come back in and they're like oh my gosh like I am so sore still and like they were flared for like 24 48 hours after treatment I'm like oh my god oh no like you know, and it's you need those moments where you've kind of fucked up to then think, okay, well, I need to think about this differently and change how I think to then apply that to people and help them with their injuries. 
But often, funnily enough, often the person that I've always flared up is a middle-aged woman that is going through menopause. And I never realised, I was like, why does this keep happening? Not knowing that women that are going through menopause that are on HRT, inflammation rates are 68% higher than what they have ever been. So any like massage, any soft tissue work, if you flare them a little bit, it really pisses them off. So it's like I go a different approach for them. So it's like I didn't know that at first. <laughs> and this is what started me to looking into female stuff was when I flared up so many menopausal women. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay, so this was a few years ago when you were practising and you were- I was in uni. I was at uni. My first time ever it happened. I was in my um, first year of my master's degree. I had a middle-aged woman, menopausal. She was probably like, she was 50 and I treated her how I would have treated like 10 people with the same thing. And then she came back. She said that she said she felt really good that night when she left. And then she got home and she was in so much pain. She like thought about going to hospital. <laughs> this poor lady. And I was only I would have my first. I was in my fourth year. But she came back. She, like we got her along really well. She's like I am in so much pain. It was just like a it was a low um, like an SIJ right hip I think. And she had bursitis, but it just, the soft tissue must have pissed it off too much. And then she came back in and, like, we worked through it. And I was like, why? Like, why did that happen to her? Like, I didn't do anything different out of the ordinary. I didn't go, like, super crazy adjuster or anything like that, like a, an adjuster being a HLA, you know, manipulation crack. I didn't even adjust her. But it was the soft tissue work that pissed her off. And then I was, like, going through all the history again. I was like, oh, HRT. HRT, I like looked at it, I was like, inflammation rates with HRT, I was like, holy shit, 68% increase in inflammatory markers in the blood. So a little, if you do a little bit too much inflammation on someone, it's like, boom, their whole body freaks out. So it was that then I realised the first time that I did it again when I was in my first year of practising, I pissed off another like menopausal woman. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> it's happened again. And then... I then I look more into menopause and more at that kind of way of treating that and that you have to be very different and gentle in your approach with women like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. But you, you only find out that through patterns, you know, like patterns yes. of what you what you saw. You treated how you were taught, uh, then you obviously, it's information, it's data. And then from there, you can then adjust. And it's the same with our own practice. Yeah. Like we need to track, we need to pay attention to the body because then we have data and information and then we can, uh, we can make changes. We can tailor that, uh, or we can also give more data to our practitioner, you know, or our coach that we're working with. Exactly. Exactly. And I wish that you know, one day I should try and do like a course for manual therapists treating women because you do have to actually treat differently when you are treating a woman because we have smaller joint surfaces, we have increased joint laxity, we have in different inflammatory um, periods during our cycle and it's like if you go for an adjustment in the luteal phase, honestly, women's necks can just go around like an hour. Like it's like, where is bind for a, a cervical adjustment? Like it's pretty scary. Like you look, you go to adjust and you're like, holy shit, that is way too far around to be adjusting. 
like the the neck range goes to a point where it's like intense but no one ever talks about this stuff as a practitioner you wouldn't know that and just one day you adjust someone and then the next two weeks later you go again and you can't do it it's like why did that happen it's because of the joint laxity due to the hormonal fluctuations but no one has i would no one had told me that <laughs> That's crazy. I always get adjusted yeah. in the first half of my cycle. So I think I'm on like day Follicular phase is fine into ovulation, but if you're like luteal, late luteal, uh, as a practitioner, I definitely know about it. <laughs> yeah. I, but even as a, a woman, I guess, again, if we can educate women, we can take responsibility for ourselves. If we understand our cycle, we understand what's going on, uh, when we might respond better, when our pain tolerance is maybe lower or higher, when our inflammation is higher or lower, you know, when our joint laxity, all of these things are really important when we're getting treated, when we're training, all of this stuff. So yeah, I put all my adjustments or my treatments in the first half of my cycle. Like I just got treated this morning. That's good. See, I've never really like tracked that before, but I have tracked, I get more DOMS in my follicular phase than luteal, but more like laxity definitely in luteal. How funny is that? Like my body hurts, <laughs> like my muscles hurt in follicular, but then there's definitely more laxity in luteal. Yeah. So, it could be that we we push harder because in the follicular phase we feel pretty good. Like we can train pretty yeah, hard. Yeah, exactly. That's true like, too. So I think that we push harder and maybe if we're not on top of our recovery, we could be a little sore. Um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's important as a practitioner, same as I say for all coaches, all male coaches need to understand the menstrual cycle. They need to understand female physiology. And it's the same with practitioners. All male practitioners need to understand the female cycle and the physiology. Because if you're just like yarding on a neck that like, you know, she's it, like, she's menop- like, like perimenopausal or menopausal and she's yeah. like... <laughs> We're yeah. gonna flare the fuck out of her. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> people don't know that. Oh, uh, okay. it's not. It's not just like the menstrual cycle, but understanding that women are more prone to neurological problems than men. Like more likely to have sciatic problems, more likely to get um, pins and needles in their hands, and that's because the. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but the diameter of like the sheath or something is smaller for a woman so it's like when you think about like the sliding and gliding of nerve tension ours often gets a lot more stickier so which is wild how does no one ever tell you this stuff yeah um like in school do they ever break that down do they talk about females female physiology and the female body and how to treat and the male and the male no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And it's That's like embarrassing. Embarrassing. I know. It's funny now. I'm now. I look for it though, so and I see certain patterns in women. It's like the hyperextending knees, the knees that have valgus, and I'm like, all right, well, this woman doesn't have very good lumbo pelvic stability straight away. As soon as I see that, I know they have really poor lumbo pelvic stability because you get hyperextending knees when you cannot posteriorly pelvic tilt and hold your TVA and hold intra-abdominal pressure. And that's going to load your big toes and the medial knee and then you're going to come out with like bursitis on the hips. So it's like 
and I can just see it straight away when someone walks in. I'm like, all right, do this test, do this. And they're like, how did you know that? I'm like, I'm looking at your body and I can see your pattern. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. We went, we went for a long time. I could chat to you. Well, yeah. We're like, I've been an hour 15 now. I, I don't know. Stuff all day. Well, you can come back on and we can do, you know, we can do one just on maybe that we didn't even get into your topic of your PhD. We could talk maybe on your work around with the women's Academy and your PhD and like how to support women that are in contact sports. You know, we could talk, we could do one on like as a practitioner and like all of the things that you just brought up at the end of this podcast, which I love around like the patterns that you've noticed on females, uh, like biomechanically their physiology and how you treat and practice. So there's a, there's a few podcast episodes in <laughs> we're gonna have different topics you just yeah. keep going we can talk about stuff all day means, means we're passionate about it though that's right i want to thank you thank you for your time thank you for your knowledge uh and really for like the work that you do, the work that you're doing as an athlete in you know a male-dominated sport and through your academy well, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, thank you for doing your work and putting the message out there too. <laughs> Where can people find you? Where do they? Uh, so you can find me just at, at GeoPage on Instagram, the main, it's where I mainly hop on to. And then at W Rugby Academy is the Women's Rugby Academy. Yeah. I'll pop that in the notes. But then also where do you practice as a practitioner? So I practice at the Movement Improvement Clinic just inside of the Movement Collective in Newcastle. Beautiful. Which is like the perfect home for me as an osteopath. Yes, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful space. They've got a beautiful culture. Um, okay, and that's where people, if people live in Newcastle and they're female, uh, they play sport, <laughs> contact sport, or they're even perimenopausal or menopausal Go and see Georgia. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, beautiful. Done. Yeah, we, we could, I didn't even realize the time. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Mine, they always mostly go for an hour or more. Oh, that's good. I think that's a good time. When, like, you think about Joe Rogan's and they're, like, three hours long, you, like, have to listen to them in different sittings yes you do yeah i'm um, no i like i like an hour you know an hour hour and 15 minutes it's a good amount of time yeah. beautiful um i'll pop all your details and everything in the show notes it won't be out for a few weeks but everything will be there yeah okay did you learn anything? <laughs> i did actually i didn't know that about um I didn't know that from a practitioner's perspective around perimenopausal and menopausal women and inflammation and treating. I thought that was super interesting. Um, Pretty crazy. Pretty wild. It's wild. Wild. I know. Um, I know. And I've like seriously fucked up people for like weeks after it. So I felt so bad and I was like, I wanted to know why did this happen? I didn't do anything different. <laughs> the things that you learn you know especially in your yeah. early days as a practitioner as a coach you're like oopsies yeah sorry <laughs> at least they liked me enough to come back is what I say 
Yeah. But again, we're not being taught this stuff. You know, if they were to teach you this in your five years of osteopathy, that, you know, that's pretty powerful stuff. That's pretty important stuff. Exactly. If they, I mean, something like, I think by passing one practitioner might've been like, oh, just be careful with like these kind of, um, these kind of patients just because they do get flared easy, but not explaining anything why. They're just like, just be careful. But I don't know why. So that was my learning experience. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. We'll have a good Saturday. Yeah, you too. I'm actually about to start doing my research now. <laughs> okay. We'll have, have fun at the computer all day. Woo. <laughs> Woo. Bye. Okay, bye. Warrior Woman, you can listen to these episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please give it love by subscribing now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and share it with another Warrior Woman. Also, tag me in it on Instagram with your biggest takeaways.